0: Hi, it's Elizabeth. Stay tuned until the end of the episode for a few quick corrections. Welcome to
1: the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling the political arubaroos from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. You can find us online at FeministCoffeeHour.com. You can find us at Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes and Google Play. And you can find us at FemCoffeePod on Twitter. You can email us at FeministCoffeeHour at gmail.com and you can find us on Patreon at Patreon.com feministcoffeehour Feminist Today, we're excited to have Adam Lee.
2: Hi, everyone.
0: For those of you who are just tuning in, I'm Elizabeth.
1: And I'm Karen.
0: If you haven't listened to episode four, we hope that you go back and listen to it. Adam Lee is my husband, and he has a new book out that we're going to talk about later. But the topic of the day is shitty atheist men adam is an atheist i don't think that he's shitty but i'm probably fine.
2: i strive not to disappoint the
0: reason that we're talking about this is because it's something that comes up over and over again and adam has written and spoken actually several times about the uh, intersection of feminism and atheism and what atheist men can do to be more welcoming of women in the movement. We are recording this episode on June 10th, 2018. Adam and I are sitting on a porch outside, so if you hear birds chirping, that's why. So Adam, what would you like to say, uh, kind of as an introduction to this topic, someone who hasn't heard about this before?
2: The atheist community, which I would define as this sort of loose collection of well-known journalists and scientists and philosophers and people who are just interested in atheism or a post religion. As activists or just as a personal hobby has been split by this debate for several years now and fortunately it shows no sign of going away anytime soon as the atheist movement has grown and become more influential and more diverse we are seeing a backlash from some of the original elements mostly white men who are hostile to the idea of sharing power with women and with people of color and that that dynamic has manifested itself in a variety of unfortunate ways Um, Several high-profile Atheist men have been very publicly dismissive of feminism, or mean-spirited or hostile to particular feminist activists. And it seems like, at times, that the harder people fight, the more pushback they get from these shitty Atheist men. So, I don't have a solution today, but we'll see.
1: My memories of this date from a while back. The first time that I kind of became aware of all this, I read Skeptic as a blog and i remember that one of the women who worked on it
2: rebecca watson
1: rebecca watson thank you wrote about an experience where she was made really uncomfortable in an elevator i don't remember the exact circumstances
2: this was several years ago i don't i don't remember the exact date but it was at a conference i think in dublin after all the events had ended for the day there were a bunch of people including rebecca hanging out in a bar and drinking and late in the morning around i don't know three or four a.m she Done for the day, she went back to her room to sleep. And as she left the bar, a man who was who had been sitting there but not saying anything got up and followed her and got into the elevator with her, and just wanted to strike up a one-on-one conversation with her and said, "I I find you very interesting. Would you like to come back to my room for coffee?" Nothing came of it. It was just a little awkward and uncomfortable. And then uh, Rebecca did a video blog about it where she just said, "You know, guys, don't do that." And that unfortunately kicked off with a shitstorm of hate and anger being flung her way and it's not entirely died down even several years later you know the worst fallout to come from this was richard dawkins who at that point was probably the most prominent atheist active and alive wrote a very dismissive essay about this where he compared this experience to muslim women being circumcised by force or having acid thrown in their face and he basically said if if you're not suffering something at least as bad as that you should shut up That was kind of the beginning of the division. That was really what started the firestorm that has still not fully died down.
0: I just Googled it. This happened in 2011. It was pre-Gamergate, people. Mm -hmm. Before, so that the elevator gate was the original Gamergate.
2: I would say that several high-profile white atheist men have kind of turned out to be ideologically allied or at least comfortable with these Gamergate-type regressive elements, just these, these people who think that white men should be in charge and should run everything and women and people of color should just shut up and stop whining and you know, be thankful that they're allowed any place at all.
1: I just so strongly remember when Elevator Gate and the Dear Muslima response mm. came out and just being like, is really kind of giving public feedback on inappropriate behavior going to be the cause of death threats online. I mean it was a simpler time where it wasn't <laughs> like Literally anything you say online could be a reason for someone to give you a death threat and for somebody to organize massive amounts of people to give you death threats online and publish the locations of your family and hack your accounts, you know?
0: I think it kind of burst a bubble for a lot of people because I think before that happened, there were a lot of people who thought, well, you know, the atheist community or the secular community is better than any religious community because we don't treat women like that and you see what happened and you know there there is
2: a lot of misogyny in the atheist community that false consciousness is a big part of the problem i think a lot of atheists have this self-congratulatory attitude like dawkins did with the dear muslima letter of well we don't oppress women the way that religions oppress women so therefore every way we treat women must be fine and women should just be grateful to take what they can get i think
1: that that's kind of a common thread amongst the kinds of biases that intellectual people have against the way that they're defended against their own ignorance or the way that they're defended against being told their behavior is inappropriate is like, well, I'm enlightened, so that's not possible.
2: Yes, of course. You know, this has gone on to this day. Honestly, in my experience, Dawkins has stepped back from public life a little bit. I think he's recognized a little late that his tendency to just spout off about whatever goes into his head has not been helping him. You know, at one point, he was referring to his own experience in a British boarding school, and he said, well, mild pedophilia is not that bad. He said, I I was groped by a schoolmaster, and nothing bad happened to me. You know, so it's, it's these kinds of, like, just these constant blunders that have made him recognize that in some respects he may... He says he feels silenced, but what I think he's coming to realize is that in some respects he's more of a liability to the movement.
0: I think you personally contributed to that silencing. <laughs> Adam wrote an article about something sexist Richard Dawkins said, and it got published in The Guardian, And then Richard Dawkins actually responded in the comment section of another blog. And I just thought it was hilarious that he can't handle any kind of criticism.
2: I'm paraphrasing. I don't have the exact wording in front of me. But he said that my column criticizing him heralded a thousand years of darkness where dissent from orthodoxy is suppressed by verbal or physical jackboots. I still get a chuckle out of verbal jackboots some years later. (laughs) Jackboots made of words.
1: My studies in psychology, and it's just funny to hear people who are like, Well, I have an anecdotal experience that means that public policy should follow my anecdotal experience. (laughs) And anyone who says that I'm misinformed is actually silencing me. (laughs) It's just kind of funny. Like, yes, you can experience trauma and not have a traumatic response. Trauma is common, PTSD is uncommon, but that doesn't mean that we should constantly be traumatizing people (laughs) and that it's fine to do so.
2: That's ancient history as far as the current debate is concerned. I would say the newest thing to break over the atheist community is the story of Lawrence Krauss. He's a famous physicist. He's a science publicizer. He's a friend of Dawkins. He's written many books. And there was an expose published in BuzzFeed, and I believe it was late February or early March of this year, saying that Krauss has a long reputation of skeevaly hitting on women and sexually harassing women and groping women at conferences. You know, There are multiple witnesses attesting to some of these incidents, According to the BuzzFeed piece, he's been banned from at least two college campuses because of complaints about his behavior. And when these stories came out, Krauss put out an angry public statement where he basically said, these women are just accusing me because I'm famous. Which is what they all say. Of course, what they all say. The only thing that gives me some cause for optimism is that when this has happened in the more recent past, men like Krauss have actually faced consequences. He was disinvited from many conferences. He lost several of his honorary positions and i think he's going to be forced to step back from public life a way that a lot of um uh, men who have been called out by the me too movement will have to. There was another one just in april, david silverman, the president of american atheists was also fired by the board. He said on because of sexual and financial misconduct.
1: Oh, the one from the meme?
2: Yes, that david silverman.
1: That's unfortunate. I actually yeah, didn't it's... know that one.
2: It's especially unfortunate because David Silverman has said a lot of the right things in the past in response to other atheist men behaving in shitty ways. Like, who can you trust? The specific incident that came out in public was that at a conference he slept with a woman who was applying for a position at American Atheists and kind of held that over her and then afterward told her well now you're no longer eligible so pull your application well at
1: least he didn't have a subordinate who he was sleeping with <laughs>
2: as, <laughs> that as might a give of the fact,
1: appearance of impropriety <laughs> as a matter
2: of fact he did according to the statement from the board They said that a woman that he was having a sexual relationship with he hired to a position at American Atheists. So there's that too.
1: Oh, okay. There's both improprieties.
0: I think I wanted to talk about one of the good things that happened, and this has been ongoing for, I guess, over five or six years, which is that a lot of women and, and feminist allies have been trying to make atheist conferences a better experience for women by instituting harassment policies. And I think that that kind of opens up just not only that people can feel safer going, but to know that if something happens, they'll be able to file a complaint and they'll be able to say, this is what happens and this is why it was bad. And when these policies first started being instated, a lot of people were just vehemently opposed to them, weren't they?
2: Yeah, the idea of having codes of conduct was hugely controversial at first, but it's become almost universal in the past few years. That is one front where... Feminists and their allies have had it, have had an unequivocal victory, I think. Now, of course, the question is, will the code of conduct be followed, you know, or will it be swept under the rug to protect famous speakers who act creepily towards women? But the fact that it's there and that there's a procedure, I mean, I think that has to be a step forward.
1: Adam, would you say that there are different camps of people who are for these and against these, and kind of what the the feel for these different camps are, like for creating codes of conduct or holding people accountable in public ways and professional ways versus people
2: who are against it? The people who are against codes of conduct and and feminism in general, I I would loosely define them as the YouTube atheists because most of them, although not all of them, seem to have their followings on YouTube, mostly young angry men. Most of them, in addition to atheism, talk about how they hate feminism and social justice, and some of them are Trump supporters. Even among atheists, some of them are Trump supporters, which really shocks me. But I think the thing about these people is, although they are numerous, they are not really the professional activists who are getting stuff done. A lot of them really just gather online to yell about whatever is making them angry that day. It's very much like the younger, more secular version of the the Fox News conservatives. I would say the the people in the movement who are doing the actual work, who are organizing the conferences, organizing lobby day events, who are filing lawsuits for the most part, are pretty well behind this, I guess you could call it professionalizing the movement, and having these codes of conduct and these reporting mechanisms, and I don't know what the relative numbers of these are. You know, a lot of YouTube atheists have very large followings, like tens of thousands of subscribers, but not necessarily all atheists. A survey that I've written about several times that really strikes me, it was done a couple years ago, is that among the different religious groups in America, the group that is most pro-choice is the atheist, and it's not even close. It's like something like 80% of atheists are pro-choice. It's a higher percentage than, I think, every demographic group except registered Democrats. So there is a sense in which I think it's fair to say that atheists are are sympathetic to feminist thinking, but you know this is not always translated well into the way the movement actually conducts itself, unfortunately.
1: I'm really curious when you say that a lot of the follower bases of these kind of regressive atheists that are on YouTube are not self-identified as atheists. I have no idea if you
2: have any knowledge of why that is but if you do I would be really curious to hear it. I only have speculation on this but what I think is that among these you know like you said the regressive atheists and Gamergate and men's rights activists and Donald Trump supporters I think there's a large overlap between these groups and I think the common denominator I would call it this, like, adolescent spirit of, you know, well, you, you can't tell me what to do. This kind of idea that, that takes pleasure in the thought of flouting taboos and deliberately being offensive and shocking people. And, like, you you know, when you had Amanda Marcotte on, she talked about her book Troll Nation. One of the things she said is this, this faction that thinks, well, I made you mad, so I win. I think a lot of the regressive atheists are very much in line with this pattern. And that the reason they identify as atheists is for the same reason that they identify as, you know, as anti-feminist or Trump supporters because they feel there's some norm, that, some social norm that they're deliberately breaking. And also this this idea of, well, you know, I can do whatever I want and you can't stop me. So atheism fits into that. Libertarianism as a political viewpoint fits into that.
1: But what's curious to me is people who identify as religious following atheist talking heads in a certain way, I, I don't know how to describe, YouTubers. That's really curious to me because I can kind of have people who I feel like are parallel ideological allies to my ideology but not into the same thing I'm into but I I generally don't subscribe to their content.
0: My first instinct is to call it nihilism but it's not really necessarily nihilism. I think it's authoritarianism. I think a lot of these people have an authoritarian streak which is why they would support You know, someone like Donald Trump or why they would fall in line behind... What's that guy's name? Was it the Amazing Atheist? The one that got on the stage and made fun of the rape survivor. That
2: was Sargon of Akkad.
0: Yeah, and then they're just cheering for him, just saying these horrible things to just get in line behind him. I don't think that's nihilist. I think that's authoritarianism. I think that's like looking for a leader to follow just because, I don't know, it feels good to be cheering on someone doing bad things?
2: I, I don't yeah. I don't know. The, the, the Sargon of Akkad story was there was a, an atheist conference in the Midwest, I think in 20... might have been last year, Mythicist Milwaukee, and they invited as one of their featured speakers this infamous... Another of these YouTube atheists, his real name is, I think, Carl Benjamin, but he goes by Sargon of Akkad, and it's the same thing. It's pro-Trump, pro-Gamergate, anti-feminism, anti-social justice, and he's best known for saying on, on Twitter to a Brit- a female member of Parliament in the UK... He said, I wouldn't even rape you. And when the person at the conference, Thomas Smith, who was interviewing him, tried to push back on this, a lot of Sargon's followers who had come just to see him were in the audience and they broke out into whoops and cheers and applause just because they're excited by the idea of getting to say rape to a woman. I don't think they really care about the context.
1: Yeah, I do kind of struggle to understand these things sometimes. A sensitive person who is like oh yeah I don't actually like hurting people's feelings or making people feel unsafe.
2: You know I think with atheism as with religion it's it's interesting that there are people who come to the same idea from totally different directions. There are atheists who come to atheist activism from the perspective of well I see religion doing a great deal of harm in the world, oppressing women, oppressing LGBT people, and I want to oppose this ideology because I want to end this harm. And there are also atheists who come to the same position from, well, religion tells people what to do and I don't like being told what to do. I want to do what I want and say what I want to everyone at every time. And if I'm an atheist, I can do that. I think really that's the same with religion. I think there are people who come to the same religion from different viewpoints too. There are religious people who genuinely want to do good in the world and see religion as the best vehicle for that. And there are people who come to religion because they like patriarchy and authoritarianism and religion offers them that.
1: It's funny, I'm reminded of a a paper I read for a class this semester on ostracism and disagreeableness, and personality psychology is in an interesting state right now, and I'm not at the level where I could attack this study or defend this study in any way, but basically this kind of cyclical experience of ostracism and disagreeableness, which is not just being contrarian, but it's kind of being actively rude to people and they basically just kind of said it was a circular relationship and that one influences the other and the other influences it back. The reason I bring this up is the way that I understand movement atheism and I think part of the reason I'm not so interested in it was that I was kind of raised in an atheist agnostic culturally Jewish household and I was kind of in a culture where atheism was not odd or unusual, and I guess I never really understood the ferventness of movement atheism. But I do have to say, as an adult, I frequently travel to the South. You know, I really felt like Jesus things were everywhere, you know? (laughs) Like billboards everywhere, medical centers that have, like, crosses all over them. It was really eye-opening to me that, like, I could see how being in this environment feeling as though you're in this minority, it could make you more provocative or align yourself more with other kinds of stigmatized social behaviors because you are in the stigmatized group as a result of your minority status.
2: It happens that way all the time. You know, as a someone who's occasionally done speaking events for atheist groups and has traveled for this, I always noticed that the large atheist groups are not in the diverse, secular, blue states and cities where you might expect them. The large atheist groups are in the red states, in the South and in the Midwest and the Bible Belt, because, like you said, that's the places where religion is pervasive, and people who disagree with it often feel the need to band together to protect themselves against social stigma and ostracism.
0: I was thinking of it more as a, like a political science thing, but that's just because I've been reading a lot about the rise of fascism in the United States and, you know, people who identify with this kind of authoritarian fascist politics. And it's like kind of a case of, I mean, I guess to be kind of flippant about it, but like you got your fascism and my atheism, you got your atheism <laughs> and my fascism. <laughs> I shouldn't joke about this, but that's, you know, kind of what I thought of. The way that the two groups are kind of crossing over into each other is uh, not good for America, but I think it's interesting.
1: What were you reading about kind of the rise of fascism in America that relates to shitty atheist men?
0: Well, just as we were talking about how I was trying to categorize these people who cheer on somebody who says, you know, just shockingly misogynist things, I feel like that's a step beyond what it was even, you know, in 2011. And in 2011, I don't think think i mean obviously these people were terrible they were sending death threats to rebecca watson but the movement wasn't energized by the trump campaign in the way that it has been or you know just across europe you're seeing more of these kind of you know interests in these right wing groups that are kind of popping up all over the world and i think you know if the politics hadn't gone that way we might be seeing a different flavor of misogyny.
2: I think that a lot of social change happens in, in cycles of progress and backlash, and I think right now we're in the middle of one of those backlash cycles. Especially in, in America, the you know, the election of President Obama was, I hate to use this term, but it was like a wake-up call to the bigots, that they realized that this certain things about this country that they had always taken for granted were up for debate. Like the idea that America could elect a black man as president was deeply threatening to them, and I think... Trump's success was a direct response to that. It was like this last-ditch idea of we have to preserve white dominance while we still can before it's too late. And that sort of wave of social change has affected everyone. It's not, you know, both both the churches and the atheist movement. No one is free from it.
1: So to refocus us back on atheist shitty men... <laughs> Uh, or shitty atheist men. Adam, you wrote a little bit about Michael Shermer, and that's actually a situation I don't know
2: much of anything about. Michael Shermer is another high profile atheist skeptic man. He's quite libertarian, although that doesn't come up too much. But there was an incident, it was 2008, at a conference in Las Vegas, and it was being put on by an atheist group called the James Randi Educational Foundation. An exposé published in BuzzFeed several years later that a woman who worked for JREF alleged that Shermer applied her with alcohol until she was very drunk and then had sex with her without asking for consent. She originally sent this account, the woman, anonymously to an atheist blogger, P.Z. Myers, who who published it. Later, she agreed to comment on the record for BuzzFeed using her real name. And Shermer was very, very upset about this. He threatened to sue when the original story was published and then did not sue. The statute of limitations ran out and he did nothing. It's odd because in this era where several high-profile atheist men more recently have lost jobs, or honors for being accused of similar things, Shermer seems to have escaped the backlash. And I kind of wonder if this was an accident of timing that the story naming him and accusing him of these activities was published before women who alleged sexual assault started to be taken seriously, before the Me Too moment, before the era of Harvey Weinstein. It's just odd to me that he is still... He has a column for Scientific American. He seems to have suffered no professional consequences from it, whereas other atheist men have, For honestly, for being accused of less.
0: You know, Adam brings up a good point that this article came out in BuzzFeed. It was huge among um, many people on the atheist Internet and some people on the feminist Internet, but it didn't get wider play. Michael Shermer has a book that came out last year, and he's got blurbs on it from people who I think should know better. It was kind of upsetting to me. He's got blurbs on it from Jared Diamond, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jeff Goldblum, Amy Chua. Not surprised at Deepak Chopra, but the others I would think would know better than, you know, to be endorsing him professionally. And there is an atheist children's book about death written by two women that keeps popping up on my Facebook, and they let him write a blurb for it. Every time I see the advertisement, I post the link to the BuzzFeed article, but they've never responded to me, so.
2: One other thing that bears note is that Schirmer still does speaking events on college campuses, and uh, PZ Myers, the blogger who published the initial allegations against him, noted that at a college the Schirmer recently spoke out a member of the faculty circulated the BuzzFeed article and said, you know, maybe we should reconsider hosting this guy. And Schirmer was very angry. He threatened to sue the college in, for allowing this article published in BuzzFeed to be disseminated, which legally makes no sense. If the original article is not libelous, you can't sue someone for republishing it. So he seems to be very sensitive about this story, and he's clearly trying to prevent it from getting wider play. You know, Possibly out of the fear that it, that it will then blow up into a, a backlash similar to some that other shitty atheist men have experienced.
0: Didn't he send you an email over a tweet?
2: He did email me once over a tweet. This is such an odd story. Shermer has since blocked me on Twitter, which I find hilarious. At one point, after this initial story had come out, he published something about IBM and an effort that they were going into to establish better gender parity on their board. And I retweeted Schirmer's tweet and I said, good message, bad messenger. And then he sent me a personal email saying, did you mean me or IBM? And that was just such a bizarre thing that, you know, he's clearly so sensitive about this. I did not respond because what would have been the point?
1: I'm going to ask you a question that is not something I believe in. I want to clarify that before I say it. (laughs) So has atheism kind of become its own religious organization with (laughs) leaders that cannot be questioned because they speak the word of (laughs) non-God?
2: It's not a unique problem to atheism, obviously. Every, you know, churches and Hollywood and powerful academic institutions and politicians all have this problem of men who have been accused of sexual harassment and assault have gotten off scot-free. I do think that in some respects atheists are more susceptible to it because the atheist movement since its inception has been majority white male. There are reasons for that which we could get into. You know, One possibility is that it takes a lot of social privilege to be able to criticize religion and not face serious consequences for it. And so it would possibly be expected that some of the earliest high-profile atheists would be white men because they could withstand that kind of backlash. And I think that has had effects on the movement that echo to this day. The question is, and and to your second point about are we becoming like the religions we criticize, the question is what are we going to do about this? Obviously, I don't think it's a sin or a crime to be a white man. I happen to be a white man. But I also think that it's important to recognize that your opinions and your perspectives are not the only ones out there and if your movement or your community does not look like society at large if there are certain people who are not present, whose voices are not being heard this is something that it would be incumbent on you to possibly look into the reasons for before deciding that this, you know we're doing everything right, it must be the other people who are wrong if they won't come to us and I think there is that danger of atheists becoming like the religions we criticize if we have our own leaders, our own gurus or idols who we consider to be infallible figures above criticism. I would have thought that the whole purpose of atheism is not just rejecting religious ideas to replace them with our own similar ideas, but to hold to these rationalist ideas that anyone can be criticized, any idea can be undercut by evidence if we find that evidence. Anyone who has a good idea should be listened to and anyone who has a bad idea should be criticized. I think that's something that atheism is in danger of forgetting, and I think we have to do more to remind ourselves of it. As I'm learning
1: more about critically reading research and things like that, I think Elizabeth and I talk a lot about critical thinking on this podcast. Part of the atheist skeptic movement is priding itself in constantly being in a state of critical thinking. But I think that critical thinking is kind of a tool, you know, like you can be a critically thinking anti-vaxxer because you are critical of the medical establishment. Critical thinking in and of itself is not a virtue, it's a tool that can be misused. But uh, I think this kind of illusion of rationality for being traditionally masculine uh, in your style is kind of an
2: interesting thing. I like that idea of you know critical thinking can be either a tool or it can be a dogma. It, critical thinking and, and rationality can be, well, the recognition that everyone is fallible and that potentially includes me. So I have to pay extra close attention to make sure I'm, I'm not suffering from a bias that I'm not aware of. Or you can use it, and as I, I said on my previous appearance in your podcast, in the Ayn Rand sense of, I am a rational individual, therefore everything I say is rational, and I can never be wrong.
1: Do you think that influences some of the shitty atheist male movies? Oh yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. You know, an analogy I've heard a couple times that I like a lot is that becoming an atheist is like a video game. If you see the ways in which religion is fallacious or false, you have just beaten level one of the video game. You should then want to go on and apply these tools of critical thinking to all your other beliefs too. What other popular ideas might be false, what other biases you have that you might need to consider. But there are a lot of people who think, well, I I beat level one, so that's just as good as beating the whole game. I can stop there and I don't have to critically examine any other beliefs I might hold.
1: Yeah, that kind of also leads me back to the minority stress issue. Where when you are persecuted for immoral reasons, like the persecutor is persecuting you for immoral reasons, it kind of can push you into this place of, I need to trust myself in spite of the feedback I'm getting from the world around me, and can kind of put you into this space of having to protect this ability to kind of self-define how you're going to behave and how that could kind of push you away from hearing solid interpersonal feedback.
2: I also think that, you know, in some respects, it's much easier to use the tool of critical thinking as a weapon against ideas that are unlike your own. You know, it's easy to say, well, those religious people are silly and irrational, and I don't have to listen to them, and I can make fun of them. It's a lot harder to turn that same tool upon yourself and say, what do I believe that might be wrong? What biases do I have that I need to watch out for? You know, it's very similar to the reason why a lot of churches will fiercely condemn same-sex marriage, which the Bible says nothing about, but not say anything about divorce, which the Bible says a lot about. It's because it's much easier to target your effort at this outside enemy rather than at the people who are within your midst who are like you and hold ideas similar to you.
1: Or like abortion, which the Bible says nothing about. I guess I remember like my early days of being like, what is religion actually? And like googling what the Bible actually says about things that religious movements... Are passionate about and being really shocked (laughs) really shocked about the things they focus on and the things they don't considering the amount of text devoted to those Mm -hmm. issues but anyway that's a whole other episode we're not talking about shitty religious priorities (laughs) uh are there any other prominent shitty atheist men that we have
2: left out of this conversation Another one, this is, you know, on a slight tangent, is not to do with feminism or sexual harassment, but um, Sam Harris, a well-known author and podcaster. A recent episode of his podcast, he interviewed uh, Charles Murray, the author of The Bell Curve, you know, this book that argues that black people are genetically less intelligent. And Sam Harris gave Murray a very friendly, softball, sympathetic interview, said he's a persecuted victim of political correctness, and people who disagree with Charles Murray are just afraid of facts that make them feel uncomfortable. And Harris strikes this brave stance of, I am the warrior against political correctness for entertaining these dangerous ideas, when, as a lot of people pointed out, these are literally the ideas of America's founding, that people of color are genetically inferior. This is not some new or brave truth-telling stance. This is just a very old prejudice being wrapped up in the cloak of science. You know, Sam Harris got in a lot of Twitter fights over this, especially with Ezra Klein, the editor of Vox. And Harris is very sensitive to the idea that he might be engaging in his own form of tribalism because, you know, he is a white intellectual and Charles Murray is a white intellectual that we must be alike and we must have these things in common and we are both warriors against political correctness. And Harris is adamant uh, on the idea that only people of color can have identity politics, that white people like him do not have identity politics.
0: That whiteness is not an identity. Yes. Yes.
2: Well, as he would put it, I am not a white man, I am a public intellectual.
0: He's both. Ezra Klein tried very, very nicely and with infinite patience to explain this to him over a two-hour podcast that I listened to with great pain to myself. That I couldn't get through to him.
2: It's a very similar story in, in spirit to these same instances of atheist men being dismissive of women's concerns, which is just that we care about the problems that affect people who look like us. You know, if there are problems that, if, that we have never had to consider, well, they must be non-problems. It's all about, you know, who is in the room and who is being heard. And if the atheist movement is majority white male, then the, the issues and concerns of white men will be heard. And we will think we're not doing anything wrong, but that's because the people who could tell us what we're missing are not there to, to point this out. If women and people of color are not, are not in the room speaking up about issues that affect them, then a lot of atheist men are just going to be oblivious.
1: So with all these things kind of going on with this system that's set up for cishet straight white men, you know, how do we kind of change the balance and create a space where women or people of color or queer people uh, might have the opportunity to participate or end up in leadership roles?
2: I wish I had, you know, a quick fix or a magical answer for this and obviously there isn't one any kind of activism is a long hard slog but I, I have a couple suggestions and I think one is that for all the time we spend criticizing the words and actions of shitty atheist men we have to find and lift up a new generation of leaders and hopefully people who can represent the atheist movement in more positive ways and improve our our diversity our ability to care about causes that have been historically shuffled to the side Uh, The American Humanist Association had a conference in Washington, D.C. this spring called Secular Social Justice. They had a lot of new speakers, people we may not have heard before at the usual atheist conference, Rota, talking about things like the drug war and mass incarceration and, you know, indigenous rights. And I think these are questions the atheist movement has to ask more often. I think the more people talk about it, the more we can broaden our focus of what atheists can and should care about. And I think, in parallel with that, we also have to do more to support atheist groups who are getting it right. Like you know, Dave Silverman, who I mentioned before, that was a disappointment. But I think the positive side is that the American Atheist Board responded very quickly, and I think admirably, by taking these allegations seriously. And I think that is something we should actually reward them for. The same for atheist groups who dropped Lawrence Krauss as a speaker after the allegations against him came out. Uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which works out of Madison, Wisconsin. They mostly do church-state issues, but they have participated in other kinds of activism. They were founded by two women, two feminists in the 70s, um, Ann Nicole Gaylor and her daughter Annie Laurie. They've done some outstanding work promoting social justice causes, kind of quietly under the radar, not explicitly, but I think they've been doing it nonetheless. I think the more that But we can support groups that are getting it right and kind of quietly shuffle these shitty atheist men off to the side, get them off the stage. Maybe we can focus more on on building the next generation of atheist leaders and hopefully they'll be a little better than the last one.
1: So what are the atheist organizations that you support when you get a chance? Or where do you read to get kind of atheist movement news that is not infiltrated by this or kind of overpowered
2: by this toxic masculinity? I have to put in a, a little plug for the blogging community where I write, which is uh, Patheos on the non-religious channel. I think the editors there have done a really good job of seeking out you know, more diverse, somewhat less conventional voices to talk about this. And they've given us you know, sort of editorial free reign to talk about whatever, whatever topics excite us. I think that's something we should do more of. Uh, PZ Myers, who broke the initial accusations against Michael Shermer, is still kind of like this old stalwart for social justice. Uh, he writes on Free Thought blogs. Yeah, like the American Humanist Association, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, these groups that are doing the right thing, I think we should support them, and I try to follow their press releases where I can.
0: So, Adam, the last time we had you on this show, we talked about you blogging about Atlas Shrugged Mm -hmm. and objectivism in Ayn Rand, and when you finished that project, you picked up another Ayn Rand project.
2: I'm a masochist.
0: We have another episode about that, too, but anyway, Mm. (laughs) you picked up another project uh, blogging The Fountainhead. Do you want yes. to talk about that?
2: Sure. So a couple years ago, I blogged my way through Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and you know, spoke about that previously. And that turned out to be a pretty popular subject. So I'm now doing the same for Ayn Rand's other major book, her first major novel, breakthrough novel, which is called The Fountainhead. It tells the story of this nonconformist architect named Howard Rourke who refuses to compromise in any of his visions. He builds buildings the way he wants to build them, even when everyone hates him for it and eventually he is rewarded for that for refusing to sell out he's rewarded with wealth and fame but only after doing all kinds of things like he builds a public housing project and then dynamites it because it wasn't built to his exact specifications there's a woman who, he, who he's in love with so he breaks into her bedroom at night and violently rapes her and this is considered a romantic scene there's just so much ridiculous stuff in the, in the book along those lines and it's also interesting to see Ayn Rand had a very strong uh, eugenicist sympathy especially before World War II that 's also in the book, so i 've noticed i 'm noting that, and I just found out there's a movie adaptation made of this book in the 40s which bombed, and I've just heard that um there 's going to be a new one made by what was the director Zack name? Snyder yeah, oh, yes, by Zack Snyder, thank you that 's something to look forward to. I was going
0: to ask you your thoughts on that
2: I am very interested to see how they're going to adapt this book to the screen, and I have a feeling they 're just going to quietly drop some of the more unpalatable parts oh there I forgot there 's another lovely scene where I mentioned Eugenics where one of Howard Work's beautiful buildings is defiled by being turned into a group home for disabled children. This is considered the worst fate a building could possibly suffer. I think if this book is brought to the screen, a lot of this stuff is going to be quietly reworked.
0: Just note to Karen and our listeners, there's some kids playing outside, so it's not our son yelling or anything. He's still napping, thank goodness. So Adam, you have a new book out. It came out in October, but to me it's still a new book because it's your newest book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What's it called? What's it about?
2: My new book is called Meta, and it is written with a Christian friend of mine, Andrew Murtaugh, who's uh, out of Indianapolis. And the book is a conversation and exchange of letters between an atheist and a Christian, exploring the philosophical groundings of our respective worldviews and the implications that they each have for how we should organize society and what kind of government we should live under. Andrew is an interesting fellow. I'd call him an unconventional philosophically inclined Christian. He's not a Trump supporter if that matters. And I think we have a pretty interesting in-depth conversation about the basis of our respective worldviews and the differences between them. And the thing that we that we tried to do in this project to make it stand out is to do it respectfully without acrimony, without yelling insults at each other or, you know, these apologetic conversations where it seems like each side is just reading off their own script. We tried to avoid that and to really engage with each other's perspectives. And I I'm pretty pleased with how it came out. Who do you think would enjoy this book? I think this book, hopefully, we each give as good as we get. And I think this book would be something that either an atheist or a Christian could read. And I think it, it would appeal most to people who want to see real interesting in-depth conversations between advocates of different worldviews and not just people who shout at each other across a chasm like we get on cable TV. I like to think that we can get a genuinely improved understanding from doing that. It's more of a um, voice
1: I, to the editor than flame war. Yes.
0: Right. I, I read this book and I think the best thing about it is that it's a good example of how to have a good faith disagreement with someone on a serious topic, like the existence of God, and you can still be friends. There's some topics where you can't still be friends uh, if you disagree, but that's... That's one of them. Just referring to the James Baldwin quote about, we can disagree on anything except my humanity, which is something that I believe in. Different topic. For a different day. And the other thing is, is that there's some philosophy in this book, so if you're interested in philosophy, you would like this book also. Do you want to say anything about just, like, how you wrote it together and how you've been, like, on it? kind of speaking tour for the past several years and
2: yeah so Andrew originally contacted me through my blog and the book was written as an exchange of letters between us on our respective blogs that we then kind of compiled into one place and reworked and expanded and since the book was published we've we've been trying to do joint speaking events where we each talk for a little while and then we get conversations from the audience you know someone says well how would you address x and then we can each answer it from our own perspective we've done this in New York City we've done this in Indianapolis I've done it in a couple other places, in Edmonton, Canada, last winter. And I think the audience questions are always the best part of these events, because they always come up with questions that neither of us would have thought to ask. And it kind of illuminates the difference between us very well.
0: So if you want to see one of these, they would be publicized at your blog, which is?
2: Daylight Atheism on Patheos.
0: The short URL is daylightatheism.org, correct? Yes, that's correct. Anywhere else people can find your stuff online?
2: Yes, I am on Twitter at Daylight Atheism. I don't tweet as much as I used to, but I still read it, and I should respond to any feedback I get there. Or you can uh, you can email me. My email is ebonmusings at gmail.com. How do you spell it? E-B-O-N-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. And you can
0: find me online on Twitter at Miss MissCherryPie, P-I like the number pie.
2: And you
1: can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N.
0: Thank you very much for listening, and if the birds chirping in the background disturbed you, I apologize. Thanks for listening to this episode of Feminist Coffee Hour. Before we go, we have two corrections. I'm here with Adam Lee, and Adam, what are the corrections?
2: I said that non-religious Americans were at the most pro-choice demographic at approximately 80% pro-choice. Uh, I looked up the actual figure. It is not 80%, it is 68%. The second correction is I spoke briefly about an email that Michael Schirmer sent me. I said that the email was concerning IBM. It was not. It was about GM.
0: Also, do you have any upcoming projects people can look for?
2: I am working on an article on a very similar topic for political research associates, which I hope will appear in the spring issue of their magazine.
1: You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. Tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.